Welcome to Aesthetics Mastery, the podcast that helps you raise the bar and thrive in your aesthetics career. I'm Dr. Tim Pierce, Clinical Director at Skin Viva Training and Skin Viva. And I'm Miranda Pierce, Director at Skin Viva Training. Welcome. How are you, Miranda? You've had a busy week. I have, yes. We had the Clifton Academy yesterday. It was absolutely amazing. But I'm super intrigued by this topic, aspirating, because from my perspective, it seems like it just, on the forums, it creates such a kerfuffle. People just worrying about whether they should aspirate, not knowing quite what to do, and also other people who don't aspirating getting very uptight about the fact that everyone says they should. It's, it's really interesting, and I often think back to my previous life in hospital medicine and I think of the clinical ward rounds and the grand round where they would um, they would debate various topics and I think this is so funny it's such a, it's actually such a small little step and we have really passionate debate about mm-hmm. it in the world of aesthetics so I'm looking forward to going deep in it and understanding a bit more explaining a bit more to people so that you can weigh up this issue and decide what's best for you in your practice. Do you think the reason that they get so wound up about as you say something that sort of should be sort of relatively simple is because you just have to do it a lot and they would people kind of don't want to do it a lot so they find a way well there are all sorts of theories obviously no one would answer the question why don't i aspirate with because i it's a real pain but having been on that journey myself from not aspirating to aspirating which i'm sure we'll go into um it is a pain when you first start and uh and i think there's there's definitely part of people who like just because it, it feels great not aspirating, if you know what I mean. You feel like you're an artist. You're just getting in there and you're sculpting and yeah. shaping. Uh, but the, the aspirating creates a bit of friction in, in your process that if you're not used to it, it feels you, you feel like you're being inhibited. Mm. There is definitely an element of that. So why do we do it? So the, this is a really important point, I think, for people to understand. It's basically a screening test. So it follows the same maths as any screening test, which is what you're, you're basically doing an extra step to try and weed out whether or not you're in a blood vessel. The theory is, if you've got the tip of your instrument, be it needle or cannula, inside a blood vessel and you pull back, that hopefully you'll get blood back in the syringe, which will give you a clear sign that you shouldn't inject because you're in a blood vessel. Unfortunately, it's much more complex than that because there are lots of things that can, as with any screening test, you get false negatives and false positives. And that's where all the debate lies, which is, does it mean anything because you get blood back in your syringe? Does it mean anything because you don't get blood back in your syringe? Um, and this is the bit we've got to kind of thrash out, is trying to figure out whether it's worth taking this extra step. Mm. Have you always aspirated? Is something you've always done? No. When I f- was first trained, uh, it wasn't really focused on at all. I don't remember it being taught. Um, so I went off when I first started injecting, not aspirating at all. Um, and my journey towards aspirating... Was, was actually largely to do with training and I, I suddenly had to look at everything I was doing and when thinking, you began, began training yes when I started training other people um, it, it was actually we didn't have a training school it was the first the first uh, doctor who I, I mentored yeah. I suddenly had this this wake up of, of realizing that the little things I do are now being multiplied yeah so it didn't feel like if you're working two days a week and you'd see three dermal filler clients you don't really get the sense of scale Mm-hmm. And then I suddenly woke up and realizing it's actually spreading. These little mm. things that I do, now other people are doing them. Mm. And I thought, I better get really, really safe or the things I do are going to be, the bad things that I have or the things I haven't been doing are going to have an impact somewhere downstream. I may never know about it, but it's basically something I could have prevented. The ripple effect. Yeah. That's interesting to me. So I think with any procedure that we do in life, 
the more sophisticated it becomes, the more we need to lock it down, almost like write it down, do a, you know, do a flow chart and kind of get, get serious about it. And I know this really had an impact on me a couple of years ago. I learned that pilots and uh, the people in a surgical environment literally have the most basic of lists which say switch this switch on you know steer slightly right or whatever it is Mm -hmm. because even though we think of pilots and anesthetists whatever as you know up there in terms of intelligence and 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 everything they are still fallible and so they need a piece of paper that says do this do this do this and i found that really kind of heartening because i thought oh great you know it's not just me that sometimes needs to just a a checklist yeah i absolutely i love the example of airlines because if, if you think about just how crazy that situation is, that you've got people flying, you know, 600 miles an hour in an aluminium tube at 36,000 feet, and it's safer than driving, how mm. the hell did you manage to achieve that? Mm. Well, the, the reason is because, because of the tiny little details. Mm. And they have this wonderful process of every single air crash that ever happens, that that crash is analyzed in detail, and it's fed back, and the entire system changes so that that doesn't happen again. Mm. So virtually every crash there's some learning and they change the design of aircraft and they change the way they do air traffic control they are always on the hunt for the one in a million event that they can prevent and why not absorb that as an aesthetic practitioner i mean until you actually deal with a with a complication you've caused you have no idea what a dark place that is like it really is miserable to be sitting with someone whose face is damaged or injured because of something um because of a procedure that they requested and maybe you did it your best shot on that occasion but you really don't want to ever go there again. And I challenge anyone to find a case where there isn't learning, where someone's been hurt, because I think there's always a way that you can do better. Um, and aspirating has been part of that for me. It's not the whole story. That's the, one of the key things I want to get across. But it's one of the many steps on your checklist that chip away at risk and make patients safer, which is what we should all be working towards all the time. Mm. So what are the factors that lead to whether or not aspirating actually works? So this is the the thing that's, that's worth. This is where the the interesting debates come on. Is like people you go on a, on a forum and and people can really go into some detail about this. Which which I as I said I do kind of sometimes find it funny because it's it's such a simple it seems like such a simple thing but actually there's endless complexity in it. Um, and a lot of it is actually functioning around the physics. But the theory is you pull back on the syringe when you're in a blood vessel you get blood in your syringe don't inject. But what else can affect that? Because we I. I know that aspirating doesn't always work, and I know that sometimes when it works, it's not because you're in an artery. Can I just say, when you say it doesn't work, do you mean that it doesn't sort of legi- uh, sort of physically work, or do you mean that the, it doesn't provide the right check we want? Well, it's both, because you, you're basically getting a false negative. So you, what I mean by when it doesn't work is you could be you could be in an artery, you could pull back on the syringe and see nothing in your blood right. vessel, think, well, I'm probably safe to inject now, inject and block an artery. So that can happen. Um, so, But likewise, you can also pull back on the syringe and get blood in your artery, and it might not be because you're an mm-hmm. artery. You might be in a okay. little hematoma that's forming around around a vessel that you've just gone through, but you haven't, you're not actually in the vessel. So that's a false negative. Uh, and this is where a lot of the debate comes from. So a lot of people will say, point blank, aspirating doesn't work. Um, and that might be true in particular situations. So for example, if you use, this is where the physics comes into it. So it's all basically based around Puselli's law, which is the law of fluids passing through tubes. Um, and one of the key things is the viscosity of the fluid. So if you're injecting with, a t- with a, something like Radies, I used to use Radies, it doesn't matter how long you wait. You, they give you a really long, thin needle. It's a 27-gauge needle, but it's long. with a really thick filler. 
that filler is never, once you've put filler into the cylinder of the needle and you pull back, it doesn't matter how long you wait, blood is never going to find its way right. back up that tube. So you're going to get false negatives whenever you aspirate. If you're using radiesse, there isn't much point aspirating. So, because you can't reverse it anyway. Because it's never going to make its way. And the, back yeah, through. okay, fine. Yeah. It's it's. I mean, you can test it, and we are we're actually going to do this. We're going to do this with a range of fillers, um, but you you can do it a hundred times, and you'll never get a positive. So there isn't a point. But there are some fillers that are in between that kind of seem to sometimes work and sometimes not. I seem to we on our first pass of experiments, we had one that was sometimes seemed to be letting blood in and sometimes not. Um, and then you get others that are incredibly reliable. Like you just always, if you're, as far as the flow through the tube is concerned, there are other factors in the body that might affect it. But if you've got a controlled situation where you're trying to pull fluid back through a needle, they work every time. They're validated to work. And that's really useful to know because you can say this filler absolutely is a scent, will give me a sensitive test, as sensitive as I can get anyway, uh, in terms of whether I'm in a blood vessel or not. And that's a good indication of when it should work. So a lot of the argument is around they take a, a small segment of when it doesn't work and try and apply it to everything. Mm. And what I hope to achieve with this podcast is to wake people up to the complexity of this uh, and realize that, yes, yeah, some people, they're right, but in a certain niche, they're not right all the time. So, yeah, well, hopefully we'll get on to all of that. It tricks me, though, because you're going to have to help me with this. And I, I sort of, I'm, I don't do, say this from a place of judgment. I'm just genuinely intrigued. For me... You talked about the seatbelt analogy, which I'm sure you can help us with. But I feel like, why not just do it? Like, why not just put the seatbelt on and, and, and be done with it? Why do people not want to do that? The seatbelt analogy is such a good analogy because, well, firstly, the rate of your chance of being in a serious life-changing car accident is about the same as having a vascular occlusion. It's about one in 17,000. Um, and we all put on a seatbelt regardless, but it's it's cultural. It's actually not, a, a, never, you know, no one's weighing up the evidence and making a, a decision about whether they should wear a seatbelt. We just all assume that that's what safe people do and responsible people, and you know that the police will stop you if you don't eventually. Um, but the, the analogy also works well because when they first introduced seatbelts, I don't think there would have been any evidence that they worked. Like, But the evidence was we've seen a car roll over and someone f- flung out of the car and landed landed in the pavement maybe if we kept them in the car they'd be safer it's that level of first principles like, yes so if you're getting blood back in your syringe there's a good chance that that was because it was in a blood vessel maybe it's a good idea to do that check that's yeah. as simple as it is a lot of people want the heavy ev- evidence yeah. they're like and they'll say there is no evidence that aspirating works what evidence in fact i actually have one here which we can show on the camera this is from a training school recently to me to me that's ev- that's evidence this is the syringe um, we were injecting first injection, aspirated, and it just filled with blood straight away. So blood rushes back in. This is quite a thick filler. It's Juvenile, Juvenile Ultra 4, and we used a little bit of it, and then it gave this massive, strong, positive aspiration. So for me, that's good enough evidence that this could have been in a blood vessel and that that check was worth doing. So when you're but, debating this on the forums, what do they say to that? Well, they'll say, well, it could have been a hematoma, which is true. Right, it yeah, could have been. Yeah. And you might also say that the trauma of actually doing aspirating is why I've got a positive. Um. So you can, you, it, it is complex, but you've got to boil it down and then still end up with a, is it still slightly better to aspirate or not? Because for me, it, it only needs to be 51% rather than 49 mm-hmm. uh, and it's worth doing. But, but for me, that's part of the evidence for it. Now, would this have caused a vascular occlusion if I injected? I don't 100% know. It could have been in a vein, for example. That's one of the other things. So could have been in a vein, could have been a hematoma. Um, 
you, you don't 100% know whether this would have prevented something, but in my mind, it's really clear that it definitely could have. Like, it de- this definitely could have come straight from an artery. It's on. It's one of the options, and there's only three: vein, artery, or hematoma. And um, forgive my ignorance as a non-medic, but what would happen if it was in a vein? Um, well, it's a good question. No one. Some people think if there's enough in a vein, you might you might decrease venous drainage, and then that can, in theory, cause necrosis. It can, for example, in the eye. If you have, if your retinal vein gets blocked, your eye necroses because there's no blood leaving the eye, so there's no oxygen coming in either. So there might be something in the face, but there are so many tributaries, so many connections that it's quite possible you could inject into a vein, and even if it stayed in that vein, it wouldn't necessarily um, prevent blood leaving because they'd find another route. So it depends on the vein and the position. And I, my gut instinct is it's quite unlikely, but theoretically possible, that you'd cause, you'd cause necrosis. I think you'd cause other symptoms, like a general puffiness, maybe decreasing drainage, so that you had a bit of swelling or, or a dusky colour, a different colour, but all the way through to getting not enough oxygen so that the tissue dies seems... Certainly, less vastly less likely than injecting an artery. Depends how much you inject. Um, do you think the non-aspirating lobby of people or the group of people? Do you think they're a bit just irritated? Do you think they just think that you guys who aspirate are a bit like nanny state kind of? <laughs> like wearing a bicycle helmet. Yeah, a bit kind of like oh god, you know the world's, actually... the world's gone mad. You know, there's no evidence for this. Um, you know, either provide me with the evidence or stop nannying me. It, it's hard for me to speak for those people yeah. because they'll they'll have a different view and and you know these are not stupid people no. like they've they've thought about this they have their opinion um I've got, I can I can surmise that there, there are things going on having been a non-aspirator yes I can reflect on the sort of things that may have stopped me from moving moving in that direction and certainly one of the elements is it what is a pain like it's annoying and it, as, as I've said it it breaks your flow so you don't feel like the sculptor anymore you feel like you're like check safety Nazi then yeah. an injection and interestingly could I just say as well from someone who has been injected sometimes it makes a weird noise doesn't it <laughs> yeah yeah I always have to say that's a good sign that's my safety check the, the noises aren't the, aren't the best noises yeah um but yeah the that that transition so I think if you've never been trained and you've been injecting for 10 years it's and maybe you've never had an occlusion because that's possible you can go a long way with mm-hmm. safety things that have nothing to do with aspirating yeah. Um, but it's we're trying to prevent a one in fifteen thousand event. So you, you, this is the other thing is you, and you see this. You know, we we often talk about beauty therapists on Instagram who seem to be doing horrendous injection techniques, um, but they get away with it for a substantial amount of time. Now I don't know how long that time is. I'm sure it's less than if you're injecting more safely according to the anatomy. But um, but you can get away with it for a while, and that might create this sense of false security. That this isn't going to happen to me. I've been injecting for 18 months. I've seen 150 or 300 patients, and I've never had a problem. Mm. And I, I think there's something emotionally that makes you feel, but beyond like even three or four, you start to get a sense of confidence. Yeah. But really, as I say, this is a one in like for me, it's once in a 10 year event. I've I've actually treated someone only once in 10 years. Most of, it's very easy to get into a frame of mind that this isn't gonna this isn't gonna happen to me. Yeah. And now I have to do this extra test when I've never had a problem in five years of injecting, whatever it is. So when you occluded someone, that obviously you did aspirate, didn't you? Yeah. So that was the one example where yeah. Yeah, it didn't work. But but I've also had probably 120 positive aspirates. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe maybe 10% of those were occlusions, I don't know. Yeah. So um, That's interesting, that's super interesting. So 
tell me, I was interested in what you said for those people who say they don't need to aspirate. There was you said something about tra- potential trauma by doing the aspiration. Tell so me. that's actually the most common reason I hear not to aspirate is that it causes more trauma than it's worth. Um, and I think I know where that comes from because we train people to aspirate, and I see people at the beginning of their journey trying to learn to aspirate, and it's it's sometimes not pretty right. because it's fiddly. You're trying to move the syringe around. You're, you're looking at... You, you, there's multiple things going on at that point mm. of injection where you're trying to hold your position, um, your patient's moving slightly, um, you're trying to uh, inj- decide how much filler to inject and aspirate, and, you've, and you, know, you haven't necessarily done that, that, that sequence of movements ever in your life. So it's fiddly. The needle skids on the bone slightly. You know, it, it can look pretty unpleasant compared with just putting the needle in and injecting, which is actually why we do it on the, on models now. We do it on these little silicon models. Yeah. Um, but it's still, I can totally understand why if you're at a training school trying to get someone started and you're trying to teach them to aspirate and you're using, you know, real people, you could easily convince yourself that this is not this is not a good thing because yeah. it may not be in that scenario. Like it actually, there is, I think it's actually not, you're not necessarily wrong at the, on that in that moment in time to say that it causes more trauma than it's worth. But I'm always thinking about the big picture in the long yeah. run. Like what's going to happen in the next 10 years if you never aspirate? Yes, it's going to be a little bit more uncomfortable for the model um, in, some, in some occasions if they haven't got it on the silicon head yet. Um, but that's still better that if they go away and inject for 10 years that they're doing it as safely as possible. And what about... In regards to the trauma situation, I'm thinking about that moment when we aspirate. What about this debate that happens around the 10-second rule? So, yeah, this is this is also where I think people flick to extremes. So they're saying it doesn't work unless you do it for 10 seconds. Right. So that's one, one thing you hear. So most of the aspirating you see happening, it doesn't mean anything anyway. Um, that's not necessarily true. That's all that's related to Pacelli's law. Now, the longer you aspirate, the more sensitive your test but also the more false negatives you'll have. When you say the longer, do you mean you obviously do the actual action, then you mean the longer you wait afterwards? Yeah, so you pull back, you create a negative pressure in the syringe, and then you're standing there waiting. Now, that's, the longer you wait, the more chance that the blood that you get into that syringe is going to be from some other source, oh. other than inside a vessel. Oh. Because this is one of the theories. So you, you might, and this is only theoretical, but if, if you're standing there for... 10 minutes and the needle's moving slightly and you know there's a little bit of trauma going on with that needle and you get a bit of bleeding around the vessel and then you suddenly get some blood back in your syringe well it's because you've stir- been stirring around with your needle tip but i don't understand then why long. would anyone say to, to aspirate for 10 seconds then if it's actually just creating a false negative well it's not it's that's a, a slight down i don't think that the increase in false positives is huge when it's 10 seconds false positive apologies um do I mean, yeah, false positives. I don't, I don't think it's a huge increase. It's just that it's one of the factors that starts to creep up. But the longer you aspirate, the more chance it, that it might come from another so source. So how long do you aspirate? It, de- it depends. Well, the, the honest I think you, should, you can have a rule and say it's 10, it's 10 seconds. Um, now, I know from some really highly skilled injectors I respect that they'll say things like, no one's got time for 10 seconds for every injection. I'm doing a full face here. And you're trying... This will literally double the length of the procedure. So... I think there's something around reflecting on your different products and how sensitive they are. And I happen to know that if you don't aspirate for 10 seconds with Juvenum Ultra 2, then it's probably not going to work. Like there's no point in not aspirating for 10 seconds in that in that particular filler. But if it's Juvenum Volbella, it, it works in a second. So you don't have to aspirate that long with that product. Right. So Even Juvenum Voluma. So it's to do with Purcelli's law, the viscosity of the filler and the thickness of the, of the, of the little needle, the, the size of the lumen those two factors and the length of it, they all control how long it will take 
for the filler to be squeezed back up the syringe followed by the blood that gives you your signal. So that's making me want some kind of, is it possible in the future maybe for us to create a table? Yes, we're working on that. Okay, that's awesome. That's part of Because I'm just confused now, because I thought Juvenile Ultra 2 was less. Yeah, it's very, I was surprised by that as well. Right, so okay, when we, when so we, did, doing, the, we did the first the run of tests and it was like, why is Juvenile Ultra 2 not working and Voluma fills up in two seconds? Yeah. So it's to do with the size of the needle and, and the, th- the viscosity of the product. Fine, so we'll come, come with more on that. So... Are there any other risks with aspirating? Um, some people say false reassurance. So mm-hmm. I think the argument here is that they think people will be overly confident because they've got a negative and then in- inject loads and think they're safe. Now, I think it's quite easily trainable. Anyone who's taken blood a lot knows that you can get into a vessel, try and draw your blood and nothing comes. And it's usually because the needle is basically up against the wall of the vessel and you're sucking the wall of the vessel in mm. and you can't get any blood out. So that could happen with an aspiration test. So that's the kind of, that, that's the kind of thing that might affect... Um, sorry, I forgot your question. About yeah. risks. Are there any other risks? So, so no, so, yeah, sorry. The, the risk being there, I think the idea is you think you've got loads of confidence and you can inject a massive bolus and really you're still in a vessel. Mm. So that's not the argument. If you get a negative, it doesn't tell you you're not in a vessel. Okay. It just makes it a little bit less likely. And tell us about cannulas and, and aspirating. So this is a really recent thing. So we had a we had a really disturbing case um, which came through um, from down south of a, of a non-surgical rhinoplasty that was done with a cannula and unfortunately caused a really significant occlusion down both lateral nasal arteries um, all the way up the forehead. There was even some, some, some necrosis right up in the forehead from the supertrochlear artery. So... Uh, basically quite a lot of product has gone in and decreased blood flow to that whole area and caused basically what could have been a life-threatening injury. She got great care and she's actually made an amazing recovery, which is really, really amazing to see. The recovery is really great. Um, But but that's the thing. You've got this... Everyone thinks using a cannula is much safer, and, and in many ways it is, but not always. And there's something here going on around... If you're in the wrong place with a cannula, if you can somehow get into a vessel, I think the size of the injury is worse. Right. And, and that's the thing. I think it decreases the frequency of injury. So you're, you're less likely using a cannula to get into a vessel. But when you do, you're more likely to stay there and then everything you inject goes into the right. same place. So you get these much bigger injury less frequently. So, so you- aspirating is, is why not add it on? And we know it works with certain products because... Uh, one of our doctors, Dr. Amy, started testing it with coffee. So you'll find a syringe full of coffee in her room. It's because she's been testing <laughs> different sized cannulas. And then we've also tested it now with blood. And Dr. Sharon has a positive as well. So she, she's been aspirating with cannulas, um, I think maybe since that case, and has had some, some positives back already. So it definitely works with some products. And if you're using a very thick product, it's not going to work. I don't think Juvedem 4 with a 27-gauge needle is going to aspirate. But I know Voluma does. So different products work, and we need to test that and get back to everyone with that. So we'll test it and we'll provide the evidence. But I think there's a general lesson coming across here, which is as you progress in your career, you I suppose the whole of your career is is a test to some extent. And of course, you'll add things on to your procedure, but to be conscious about it and say, with, go back to the, the, the pilots, you know, I have a list of my safety belts that I'm using. And once I've tested it to my 
satisfaction it's going on the list you know and it's not i'm not going to mess around with it it's you know this is now a safety belt that's going to help someone not get that horrible necrosis that that, yeah. uh, we, that we've heard about and just remembering that it's you're changing your risk from maybe one in fifteen thousand to one in twenty five thousand yeah so that when you actually multiply that out of your career it might you may only prevent three occlusions or you know depending on how busy you are but is that worth it? I, mm. I tell you what, if, once you're in that situation and you're trying to reverse someone or maybe they don't come back in time and they actually get a scar, you, you will know that it's worth it. Yeah. And can I just ask a question slightly off topic, but it came to me and I couldn't sort of go beyond it, which is in the case of, so you, let's say you're injecting a nose with cannula and now you've, um, let's say you, you either aspirate and you get the, you know, and you do, basically you don't know that you've done something, something wrong. Can you just give us a little tip about how you could not let that person out of the room until you've checked that they're okay? So, so, so are you suggesting I've made the diagnosis or not made the diagnosis? So, no, you have. So, it, you thought everything's fine. Um, you either. So, let's say you were aspirating with your cannula and you didn't get the the the, the flashback, um, or may, you know, I just I just feel like can you just give us a tip so that that does not happen, like so that we try and not let the person out of the room out of the room. Um, yeah. Well, I've been recommending this for a long time now, which is just routinely in your. I actually do it in the consent process. Once you've scared them by saying you might get a blockage in your artery that could cause a scar, you then tell them how you're going to re- reduce the risk of that. And patients love this journey. I would say that a good consent process has a cadence from terror to reassurance. Mm. So you might get a blockage that could cause a scar, but I also have an injection sequence which reduces the risk. So I'm going to aspirate. It might be one of the many things you do on that list. Um, and then I, I'm after, after the procedure, I'm also going to check your blood flow. I do that with a simple test where I compress the skin and then I observe the blood flowing back into it through the capillary refill test. And once I've seen that, I can be reassured that you have normal blood flow to your skin. So patients are like, oh, that's scary. Oh, you've got a way of checking it. That's great. And, and it sounds trust- so professional, doesn't it? <laughs> Expert. Yeah. So patients like hearing it. It builds trust. And most importantly, then you have to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you go At that point where you've told your patient what, you, what you're going to do to reassure them, particularly when they're nervous. It's actually one of the reasons I quite like nervous patients is because they drive you to like be certain in all the in all the components of the treatment area so if they're nervous you need to do that test show that you you can make it more real you can show them in a mirror show them that what a normal capillary refill they become an educated patient who even Mm. knows what you're talking about when you say is capillary refill normal when they message you at 1am or whatever so um so you you show them you tell them what you can do you check before they leave you then make a note of that great example on the forum recently was someone actually had a video of it normal she caused a hematoma then then videoed the capillary refill which is normal which is so useful when actually a few hours later the capillary refill was slightly slower mm-hmm. but she had a big hematoma so the hematoma was causing the decreased mm. capillary refill and you can say i've got evidence that the artery wasn't blocked when she left yes it's only slightly slow now and she's got a bigger bruise so i feel okay with monitoring this rather than emergency emergency reversal time but all of that strikes me, coming back to this pilot stuff, all of that strikes me as just so deeply professional and safe and makes you feel better. Because we know, don't we? This is why all my mindset stuff is so important, that we know that it's incredibly, like it can really wind you up, you know, th- th- this environment, uh, especially if you don't feel you've got people around you to help. And so I know, obviously, at Skin Baby Training, we've got the beautiful Skin Baby Training network where we help each other on Facebook. But you know, just you can help yourself is what I'm trying to say by doing all these steps, saying them out loud and, and aspirating and checking capillary refill and stuff. I think it's so powerful. It's so simple, but powerful. Yeah, I totally agree. So 
you've obviously explained how long you aspirate for. Tell us about lips, because I think that's another contentious area. And you sometimes see people on forum kind of um, demonstrating, sort of seemingly demonstrating their knowledge around aspirating on lips. So what's your position on it? Um, I've had tons of positive from lips and we get them in the training school as well. But why so, don't they think that, why don't they want to? Well, it's um, it's similar reasons. It's, does it, Is it more painful? Does it cause more trauma? I think, well, one of the things, by the way, just to go back to that point of, of does it cause more trauma is once you're practiced at it, it it becomes seamless. Like yeah. the, the way I aspirate now compared to when I first started, it's almost hard to spot it because yes. it's, I'm just, it's, it's built into my, I've, I've made an efficient way of doing it through tons and tons of practice. So it's a little aspiration, a little weight, then inject. You, you're not seeing fiddly, yeah. painful, like twisting the needle in the lip and stuff. Now, if, if you're at the stage where when you aspirate, you're twisting the needle in the lip, well, you're not going to want to aspirate again. And you'll think, geez, this is so painful for my patient. I'm not going to do it next time. And I think you need to go through that pain, master the process. Um, practice in other ways like practice not on your patients just and i'm going to sh- demonstrate this later in this uh, in this podcast or on the video how, how to aspirate so that you can get the key concepts and and do it in a less painful way but, but, that, but i think that's the main with thing with lips is it, it sometimes is painful and looks so there's no they do i thought i mean to be fair I, I can't remember in detail but i thought they had some kind of scientific reason that they well you can you can make anatomical arguments not to aspirate so for example if you're using I've heard it said if you use a you know four millimeter needle that that may not be deep enough for you to ever be near a vessel. Um, they're also really sensitive at aspirating four, ne- four millimeter needles. They were because of Puselli's law. It's a short needle. You're more likely to get the blood coming back up. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know if I'd necessarily buy that. I think you can compress, and there might be little branches that are superficial. So I, I still, I personally, I don't think it, you'd lose anything. But those are the kind of arguments people make. You're too from, far from the vessel. The filler doesn't let you aspirate anyway. It causes more trauma. So why, why would you do it? So you are sitting in the clinic. You have been doing your aspirating for three and a half years. And you get your first blood. A couple of things about that. How do you sort of manage yourself in that situation? Because it can feel... People, interestingly... My interpretation is, oh, well done, you know, great. But actually it can feel like, oh my God, I've had a thing, the thing, oh God. So how do you manage yourself? And then how do you manage the patient as well? How do you say, ah, yes, I now have your blood in my syringe. Yeah. So you, it's, it is interesting how people go both ways. Some people go into a moment of terror. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, I was in an artery. That's so close. But, you know, it's, like, it's a bit like that car accident that you nearly have. Yeah. Some people go, I could have died. And other people go, I'm alive. <laughs> so... um I'm definitely on that end of the spectrum that I feel great when I get a positive. I feel like all that aspirating I've been doing and saying, bam, I, ha- I just, today could have gone horrifically wrong. And instead of a patient lying in the bed for two hours and worrying about her face falling off while I try and reverse it, um, all I have is a syringe full of blood. Yeah. So I'd much rather have that than that experience. And I, I will then tell the patient, because I, I, I think they like to know, I'll say that safety tip that I told you I always do, it just paid off. I know I just prevented um, something bad happening to you by doing a little simple safety check. So you've got nothing to worry about, but I'm going to just take the tip of the needle off because this is what you do. People often worry, what do I do with this, with this syringe? You basically scrape the blood off the top and dispose of it. This one, the reason it's here is because I couldn't do that. It's, yeah. and I've never seen it happen this way, but it tracked up down the side of the filler. So it's filled up almost from the back to the top. So I don't think injecting blood is a great thing. I think it's inflammatory and you might basically, 
you might be able to see it if you're near the surface of the skin. So it's almost like injecting a bruise. So I don't, if I get it mixed with a filler, I don't, I wouldn't use it again. So go back over that. I didn't quite catch that. So just give us a normal example where so it's just what, a little What weird. normally happens is that you fill up with blood at the top of the, the, top yeah. of the filler. So if you then take the needle off and squeeze that out, the blood comes out. You can then scrape the blood off with the next needle, put a new needle on. Yeah. You've now got no blood mixed in with your filler and you carry on injecting. Fine. So you don't have to, just to be clear, you don't have to get rid of that filler because obviously it's quite expensive, isn't it? Yeah. The, the exception being in this case where, for, I've never seen this happen before, but it tracked all the way down the side of the filler. I think it was a good strong aspirate by my delegate. Um, and then that basically mixes with the filler. And I thought, you probably could inject it. It's not, it's just their blood. It's like some free PRP, but it's not spun down. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I just think it's a little, little bit more likely to just not be good It's practice. an unknown territory and you may as well not take the risk. Yeah. Well, I, I know it's not going to cause a major problem, mm. but it's also not... It's just I just don't want to create a more sore area and uh, I don't want to be able to see the blood. You know, I don't want to bruise if I'm near the surface that I needn't have had. So it's that kind of thing. It's just slightly better not to. So in answer to my question around how do you sort of manage yourself, you know, maybe try and flick into what you just said, which is, oh, well done me, you know, this has paid off. Um, and then talk through with the patient do you think you get away without talking through it or do you think it's better just to crack on well, you can definitely get away without i mean if i'm really busy i don't go into it i'm like i just go and change the needle and carry on um but if you've got someone who you've spent a long time consulting to get their trust and you tell them how safe a practitioner you are yeah. it's a great time to reaffirm that yeah just so you know that test i told you of it's it's worked so yeah. um there are many injectors who don't do this and perhaps you would now be in a different situation you could say that just a small observation if i may around having seen you work and having heard your reflections about how people treat how clients treat you one of the biggest things they often say and i've seen this happen is you'll do like your amazing consultation mastery and like a big consultation and then they just go yeah, I'll have all of, you know, I'll have all of our 15 syringes or whatever. And then when you ask them later for reflection, like, why do they do that? They say to you, well, you seem to know what you were talking about. And that seems like a throwaway comment. But actually, I do think that whatever we can do, whatever clinicians can do to build up that picture, that credential, it's like you've got your name badge, you've got your certificates on the wall, and you've also got every little moment where you showed them Mm. that you were an expert absolutely it well builds up his picture i don't know if i've talked to him on this podcast but the three different types of trust um one of them is competence they need to trust in your competence and you can get that some people trust your competence because you've got a, a great image from a professional photographer yeah. and you're looking like a doctor which is fair play which like, is fine yeah. but i don't think anything builds trust more than actual practical demonstration yeah. of the the things that you're doing specifically for them to keep them safer yeah. and to adjust the treatment so there is a normal way of doing this treatment, but because of your face and because of what you've said, I'm going to tweak it slightly. That's a moment of, okay, this is an expert. Yeah. And you don't even know until you've had it said. You might think, oh, yeah, I trust this person, 10 out of 10. Then they do that, and you're like, actually, you know what, this is even higher. Yeah. I obviously was more like eight before. Now I'm at nine and a half. And from my reflections on the phones as well, because obviously I've spent many years sort of booking people in, is that people will hook on to little things like that. They'll say, oh, and I really liked, um, you know, Dr. Amy or whatever, because she, um, she said this one thing where she said, um, do you know what, I, you know, I, I, I don't advise treating you that thing that you wanted. And I thought that was really good. And, they, you know, they, had, they hook onto these little one-liners. Mm -hmm. And I think things like that 
Um, or another example might be that if you, you know, if you, if you really talk a, talk a lot about sort of um, cleansing down the area and things like that, then you get a little brand as someone who is you know super hygienic. So kind of build up your brand, I think, with these moments. It's an opportunity. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Back to totally the science. <laughs> okay. So how do we how are we disposing of this blood now that we've got? I just put it in the sharps bin. Yeah. Okay. Fair and enough. then uh, and carry on and uh, take a picture of it and share it on the forums and just to show people who doesn't who don't still don't think it works they can see one more little case study. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And um, can you? I mean, just to kind of go back on this incredibly important point, can you cause a VO even when you you know you've aspirated? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's back down to this: what's actually happening with that needle tip? So if you have a needle in a vessel and it's not touching anywhere else and there's plenty of blood around and you aspirate and it's a low viscosity filler, you'll probably get blood back in. But there are lots of variables that can change that so that you don't get blood back in. The simplest one would just be that you're up against a blood vessel wall. So that as you pull in, you suck the wall against like a little valve, you don't get blood back in as you inject straight into the artery. So nothing's 100% a sport. It's important your patients know that as well. And it's most important that you know that so that you've always got that little door open of could it be a VO? Because you'd much rather have that question than nah, not even consider it. It must be a, you know, a cold sore or something. And then you leave it too late and you miss the boat. So, yeah, no, nothing's 100%, unfortunately. So whilst we have our checklists, which are incredibly important, we don't think that they are... The, the sort of the, the bible you know that they are they're going to help us as much as they can but we still have to do our other yeah. checks which is like just like, like any refill. other safety thing if it's a bicycle helmet or a seatbelt, yeah. you don't think because you've got no. a bicycle helmet on or a seatbelt on that you're 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 now going to be immortal on the road yeah no, you can really still kill point. yourself yeah, yeah, yeah so it just makes you a little bit safer and it's significant enough that it's worth doing so go on then show us I'm dying to see. So how do you ask? Well, the main reason I wanted to do this is because it's it's so fiddly um, with different ways of aspirating. I thought I'd just show you that there's multiple ways of doing it. So, But the, the fundamental principle with a good aspiration is you want the, the force across the syringe to be zero in your, in your, at the point of aspirating. If you create a vector and you're pushing the needle away, it becomes more unpleasant. So for I example, I don't understand that. I'm going to demonstrate. <laughs> so if, if I'm injecting the chin and I want to aspirate, and I pull like this and I pull the needle out. The force, I'm creating a negative force that's pulling it that way. So anything that pulls the whole structure away or right. towards is going to be painful. So what I want is, I will often say, a, if you can aspirate with one hand, you're going to get a neutral vector. So a neutral vector is there's zero. The net force across this whole structure is zero, but look, I can pull back. Right. So what I'm not doing, if I do the opposite, is using two hands. See how that, my hand is yes. pulled in a different direction. So basically what you're saying is your left hand needs to be stable. Yeah, you could say my left hand needs to be stable. But how, the question is, how do you make it stable? And the key thing with that is you need to figure out a way that you, you're effectively pulling the syringe apart with, a, with something that's in, that's in the middle of it. See how that isn't moving and I'm pulling back. Right. So you the, mean the middle of it isn't moving, but your the whole the stuff. whole structure is still because yeah. I'm separating two components. My using one hand, which means the force is emanating from a point here. It's not from two points on either side that then changes the position of the whole structure. Do you always just use one hand? No, but I, I use. Te well, I, well, I tend to do something like that. So the, these are the different ways you can do it. So if you think about it, that's the same thing. If I can aspirate with one hand there, then I've done a neutral neutral on the syringe, but there's a there's an outward pulling force instead of a directional force on the whole structure so one hand is a shortcut to achieving that because if you're just using one hand it's very hard to pull the whole thing in a weird direction because you're just trying to do 
Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as soon as you apply two hands, you can still do it, but you've got to try a lot harder to do to do that. And it's a, especially when you first start, you tend to pull slightly harder with the pulling hand. Then you come out of sorry, making. Then you come out of position, and you lose the you lose the benefit. So sorry, just to be clear. So if you do pull too much, and the whole syringe goes to the left, then what's the consequence of that? You come out of position in the face, and then you've got to inject them again. Right. So if you, oh, you pull out the skin, or even if you're just moving around, and then you go back in and you're jabbing them in the in the bone again, and then you're coming back out, and it's messy. <laughs> this is the messy bit that people don't like. So we want. You want to think of a clean way of doing it so that you can do it repeatedly. It's so, so funny seeing you inject Debbie like that because you, you literally, like, normally you're a complete swan, like swanning over the water, and now you're just like, how's <laughs> that, Debbie? Yeah, so the, the, it can look that way. Debbie's so, the mod, the, for the people on Audible, on audio, Debbie is just a, just a model a, head. Yeah. So let me demonstrate a couple of ways you might do that. So bearing in mind the the ultimate usually involves that you're you're doing most of your pulling force with one hand rather than two hands. That makes it easier. There are exceptions to that, but I'll, I'll show you some of them. So um, the first thing is you once you've found your position, there's, there's nothing wrong with stabilizing with that hand and then using a thumb like that. So, But I'm still, the pulling force is coming from these two, from my thumb and my forefinger, and I'm pulling out like that. So the vector across the whole structure is still zero. Um, if you... So this, this is from this angle, that's actually what I might do. But sometimes you're at a different angle. So you might be at this angle here uh, and you need a different position with your thumb. So at this point, I might be pulling back like that. So you need to practice these different angles. There's another one where you can do, you're kind of down like this is a bit like I've seen Maurizio de Maio, he does this. He's kind of holding the whole thing with one hand and he pulls back with his with that finger while he's holding the lower bit. Mm -hmm. So. What you will never see Maritza de Maia do is that, <laughs> or any pro injector. Like basically, even if I didn't teach you this stuff, um, most people who do 10,000 injectors, you, you learn away because you Shows hate that it. again. Which one? This one? The bad one. The bad one is this kind of pulling where you, you, you've got one hand pulling way, one direction yeah. and one hand pulling the other. And so if you kept going, you do that. Yeah. It's another way of explaining the vector. If I keep going with one hand, there's only so far I can go and it's, I'm not going to suddenly shoot it across the room because yeah. it's neutral. So, but what people will struggle with is at different positions, you're in different angles. So you need to work on different ways. So here's another way that I might do it. Um, I'll try and do it. It's hard to demonstrate so you can see it on the video. But you, I often do this technique where it's a bit like you're just using your thumb and your forefinger to pull back. So in a certain angle, you're doing that. So it might be in the cheek, pull back, give it a few seconds, and then inject. And how much do you have to pull back? That's a good question. So the, the honest answer is, I don't think that no one knows a precise amount, but it needs to be significant enough that the pressure in the syringe drops enough to pull the filler back out of the syringe. So that would be another the hold. The blood? Yeah. So the filler has to, no, the, not the blood, it's actually the filler, because that's the, that's the hardest bit to pull out. So usually filler is thicker than blood. So the, the biggest obstacle is you've got to pull the filler back out of the cylinder. And then if there's blood, it'll usually follow it quite easily. But there needs to be a pressure difference, this is Pacelli's law again, between that side of the, of the needle and, and the inside. So you're dropping the pressure here enough that you drag the filler back through. So what I would say is it's usually, you know, it's, if you're at the end of the syringe, the most you can do is about 0.1 of a mil. That may not necessarily be as sensitive as when you're further down and you can create 0.2 of space or maybe even 0.5. Too much space just... I don't know if it, there's, there'll become a point of diminishing returns where it doesn't increase your sensitivity. But you're right, that's another variable is the pressure difference.
North and front. Yeah. So let me just show just a couple more different angles that you might use just to show people a bit more. So the thumb technique would be this one. Now, in reality, I'd probably be stabilizing it with the other hand, but I'm just doing it for a cleaner shot. So you can pull back with the thumb. You might have, what would I do here? So that then if I'm in a more awkward where I need my other hand, then I'm still stabilizing with one hand. I'm not using that hand to do anything other than hold it stable. It's this, this is the aspiration I'm doing. So I'm still doing a one-handed aspiration, even though it looks like two. Just one side is actually doing the effect of the pulling. Um, Tell us about, because I'm seeing you do one-handed this and one of that, and I'm thinking she's, I know, I know I'm not a clinician, but I don't, it seems a bit advanced to me. If I'm just starting out and I want to aspirate, let's say I'm doing a nasolabial fold, show us that, and show us how sort of to make us have the least to think about. Show me to aspirate. Um, well, I don't know if I can... I think one of the key things I want to get across is that it depends on the position of your body, which mm. is the best way to aspirate. If I show you, try and show you one way to aspirate, you're going to find it really difficult in certain spots. I think it'd be more useful to think about it as try and find what's, what's a comfortable way for you to aspirate in every position that you tend to use. So um, I would probably be doing, if I, I'd never inject a patient, I'm, in this example, I'm on the wrong side, but, but I, if I was in this position, I would aspirate like that. I'd use my thumb. Okay. If I was on this side, I might be, maybe it's more like Maritza de Meyer's technique where you're kind of holding the whole thing and then, and then pulling back. But I'm still using one hand predominantly. Right. That's Do this again. So you're holding it. I'm doing but you're, stabilized yeah. with left hand, aspirate with, with your right hand. Um, what are the other ways you can do it? Thumb. This, this way is, is quite useful to, with your thumb that way. In certain situations, it seems to, it, it, it works better. Can't <laughs> find the best one. It's so funny for me watching you mauling Debbie. Sorry. The key message is you, you've got to think about your angle and then start to use your hand in different ways to achieve the same, the same, the same yeah. job and your other hand. And there's probably, we should probably do a little table. There's probably about 10 different ways I can think of. And then other people invent new ones that they've always thought are just normal, but they're little tricks that they do. So have a look at how other people inject and just be aware that it isn't, if you just stick with one angle, you're going to find it in some parts of the face impossible to do. You need to, you need to think about how to do it in a slightly different way. And then once you've done that a few times, it becomes second nature. You don't think about it. And how, again, layperson question, how many times you're aspirating every time you stick the needle, you re-put the needle back in the skin? So my recommendation is when, if you're not aspirating at the moment and you want to go towards aspirating, go through a phase of aspirating all the time because you'll get your, you'll get your experience really, really quickly. I'm not against having a very educated guess about where you're placed in the skin, that there are certain times where you're just never going to get a positive in that, in that particular place or with that particular filler. So there, there are places where it seems really clear that you're, you're so unlikely to get a, a big aspiration from an artery. Like, you know, treating fine lines when you can see the shape of the needle. There are certain parts of the face where you can literally see the skin kind of drop off the end of the needle when you lift it slightly. You can tell you're not in a major vessel. There's no bleeding going on. Sometimes aspirating, you lose your position, even with trying your best to be neutral. Um, so there are times when you can, once it's part of your routine, you, can, you could selectively drop it in a very educated, carefully considered way because you just know that there's no chance when you can see the shape of the needle in the skin that you're in the, in the labial artery or whatever it is. Um, and aspirating is going to make you lose a position, for example. Um, which shouldn't happen that much, to be fair. But um, but yeah, it's still I would say I still aspirate ninety five percent of the time, 
And if I'm not, it's it's a very specific niche part of the skin. And I think as well, like if it was me, I would just do it all the time, especially if I was starting out, because I think you make those judgments based on first principles that you've established over 11 years of injecting. So um, yeah, just my thought anyway. Yeah. Well, I'll give you one example would be sometimes treating the oral commissure. There's a, there's a very specific injection I do where you've just got the bevel of the needle in. So it's literally the tiniest, most superficial bit and you can lift the skin up. You can see the shape of the skin. Like you couldn't be more superficial and it's a tiny amount. If you if you aspirate, sometimes you, you, you pull out and you drop out of the skin and then you've lost your position. And so you're so superficial that, that I know the position of the artery because I've seen it in cadavers. That's one of the, one of your points, I suppose, um, in terms of your knowledge. But I ca- I'm really certain that if I inject there, that there is no artery. It's too. It's way. It's in the wrong place. So that's one of the rare occurrences. But I still aspirate 95% of the time. So these these are very much exceptions. They're not mm. the norm. Mm. Fab. And tell us about your experiment that you got going on. So what we're going to do is get as many different types of filler as possible, and we're going to st- stick a needle into me, and um, we're going to take we're going to. Well, we're going to try some directly into my arm. So we're actually going to stick the needle, a primed needle, so there's already filler in the in the cylinder, and see if we get blood back with with the different fillers that we use. Then we're going to try the same thing with cannula, and we're also going to time it. So I want to see how long it takes to get a positive for the different fillers because I know there's a big difference. So I think it'd be really useful to see how many seconds it takes for the for the filler to actually come back. Um, oh my God, I didn't know you were doing that. That's amazing. Yeah, should be quite interesting. Anyone who likes to see me in pain. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, don't aspirate lobby might be up for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, either way they, w- they, well, Still gain they win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay, thank you so much for that. It's been super useful. And I think um, it's, it's definitely an area that uh, causes contention. So great to explore the different um, the different elements sciencey and non-sciencey as well so thank yeah. you very much okay thank you if you've enjoyed this podcast then please let us know by sharing and liking and letting us know in the comments as well is there any other suggestions that you'd love for podcasts then yeah Hit you can leave up. a review on itunes as well that's really great to see i know there's a few reviews popping up already and i don't think we asked that much but uh, people are reviewing us so really yeah. appreciate it um thank you very much for watching yeah thanks